We are pleased to get this uh, session started today with Grady Miller. And Grady preaches for the church, Pikes Peak Church in Colorado Springs. I've been there 20 years. Uh, he is the son of, a, of an outstanding preacher, Max uh, Miller, uh, who's passed away, but his, Max was an outstanding preacher. So he grew up in a preacher's world. Uh, he's preached in uh, several different states uh, and has always been a great student of the word. I, I appreciate those who move to a place and stay there a good while. That speaks well of the congregation. It speaks well of the preacher who is preparing himself on a regular basis to continue the work that he's doing. One of the interesting things also about Grady is that uh, uh, he takes uh, lots of trips to Israel. Uh, he, he's about ready to go for his ninth time and hopefully take a, a group from uh, Colorado Springs, Pike Peak area. Uh, they've been put off once or twice already and hoping that it will soon come to pass. He is a great family man, his father, his uh, wife Darlene, uh, they married in 73, they have three wonderful daughters and several grandchildren. Uh, so he's a well-seasoned preacher, has spoken on our lectureship several times, always does a great job. I'm confident you'll have a great message from him this morning. Come and preach the word, Grady. Good morning. So good to be here this morning, and this morning we begin in earnest our study of 1 Corinthians, about the second half of the book, and two years ago, the lectureship looked at the first eight chapters, and this morning we're going to start in chapter 9. And you know, 1 Corinthians 9 shares one trait with scores of others chapters and passages in the Word of God, the good Bible student, and I know that's the majority of our folks here this morning, when we hear a chapter reference, our mind instantly clicks and, oh, Genesis 6, flood, chapter 12, the call of Abraham, Exodus 20, Ten Commandments, Matthew 5, start of the Sermon on the Mount. And when we look at 1st and 2nd Corinthians, chapter 7, marriage, chapter 13, that more excellent way and the gift of love, chapter 15, the resurrection. And when we think of 1st Corinthians 9, we might even bookend it, 2nd Corinthians 9, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, and there's the support we give to our work and the Lord's cause and the worship that we bring in an offering to Him. 1 Corinthians 9 has to do with the preacher and the minister and the laborer in the vineyard being supported by God's people. And when we think of 1 Corinthians 9, that's first and foremost what comes to mind. But I think we need to do a little more, and as our good brother prayed just a few moments ago, set the passage in its context. Paul is talking about matters of choice and liberty and freedom and rights, and we need to understand that 
Chapter 9 is not an isolated parenthesis, a stand on its own without any connection with what comes before or after, but it ties into the points and the lessons that Paul is bringing. And I think that in our typical auditorium Bible class, they're wonderful. Some of them operate on a quarter system. Down at Pikes Peak, whenever we start a book, we just go until we finish it. My friend Kevin Ballard that works with me is leading us through a study of the book of Romans and we're on our third year and we're in chapter 14. But now then we lost a whole year from the COVID, don't you know? But we sometimes taking that week to week approach, we're mired down in the details, we're lost in the weeds, and we're looking at the immediate context and not seeing how it fits into the overall flow. And so if we're looking at 1 Corinthians all the way back in chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul there will say, I can do all things but. Not everything is profitable. Not everything is what we need to be doing. Not everything is good. Just because I can doesn't mean that I should. And if you skip ahead to chapter 10 and verse 23, he repeats that, saying the same thing. And again, I don't think these are so much bookends, a start and a stop, but they're a connector. And that's an indication to us that as he's talking about this and that and the other, he's relating it to this overall issue of can I do it? Do I want to do it? Do I have the power to do it? Or are there some reasons and maybe I'll decline that privilege? And so Paul talks about how God made us to be sexual creatures, to enjoy that intimacy. And that's our right. There's no shame. There's no sin. If we follow that urge along the way that God has planned, not fornication. And Paul will talk about marriage in chapter 7. You know, whether one chooses to marry or chooses not to marry, when we get to the pearly gate, there's not going to be a sign that says only the married or the unmarried can enter in. That's my choice and yours. But if we marry, we need to respect what God has said concerning that. Chapter 8, and the eating of meats sacrificed in the idols and sold in the marketplace. Can I buy? Can I eat? Am I able to do that? Well, Paul will say, yes, that's within our right, but our rights end at a certain point. And he will say in chapter 8 and verse 12, we best not sin against our brethren and their weak conscience. So, yes, 1 Corinthians 9 is a chapter, it's a context, it's a passage, and it has to do with 
paying the preacher. But it's so much more than that. And here's the irony. And I know that it's not lost on you. Our number one go-to text in all the New Testament about paying the preacher was written by a fella who says, I don't want you to pay me. He says, yes, that's God's arrangement. And you support others freely, apparently without grumbling when it comes to my support. Some of you insist on a particular way. But you know, I decline support from car rent. So he's not wanting to take that pay, if you will. But there's the passage that we go to to argue that we can indeed. Now then, when we look at the passage that's before us in chapter 9, here is not the best slide I ever designed. It's a scan of a page from my Bible. And you know, some of you I follow on Facebook, and you post from time to time the most beautiful works of art. There's the Bible passages and the different colors and the words that are circled and the boxes that are drawn and very neat, precise handwriting, the notes that accompany this or that. And I look at that and admire it and know that I could never, ever do it that way. My understanding is that the Logos software has that feature called Canvas. Some of you have found that. I know that Michael Hyatt could probably give me a good lesson, but I've got that old dog, new trick thing working against me. So I can't quite get that to work either, but... If you're looking at chapter 18, or chapter 9, we're going to be looking at 18 verses, and what do you know? There are 18 questions in those 18 verses. And I have found one way that maybe is more natural and obvious, especially in going through the material in a class and talking and studying with people that may not have camped in the Scripture as you have and as you are. Look, 18 verses, 18 questions. Just look at the questions that Paul asks and see how that they cluster together. They go together. And here's one grouping and a point that's being raised. And then this naturally goes to the next grouping and the next point. And here's the masterful, scholarly, logical, ponderous, point-by-point way that Paul loved to develop his material. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, when I write a letter to you, I don't want to terrify you. And that's what you're saying. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. Well, if we kind of take that cue from that second letter that we have from Paul, as we call it, 
And we know that Paul wrote other letters to Corinth and they wrote letters to him and those have been lost to us. But yet if we look at them complaining about Paul and he's too detailed. He labors through the material and it's an irresistible flow of logic. Well, what were they talking about? Maybe they were talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And how that in an irresistible way he raises one series of questions and then the next and the next and the next. And that's the way that Paul builds his argument. I suppose here's a better slide. At least it's clearer. And you have your open Bibles with you or tablet or laptop or phone or whatever. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 9 and see the way that this material just flows. It opens itself up. And really all we need to do is hang on and go with it. And so there in the first verse, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Are you not my work in the Lord? And there are four rhetorical questions. And the way that it's worded, the syntax, the grammar, the construction, they're rhetorical questions that the answer is baked into the answer. And each one is answered by a yes. Who started the work in Corinth? Well, no one could dispute that. And Paul says, are you denying that I saw the Lord Jesus? And because of that experience and that calling and the authority that I have that comes from that, I planted the seed and you are believers because of the work that I began and others have taken up. But here's the tracing of the work in your own city. Isn't all of this obvious? And maybe unspoken or reading between the lines there seems to be some rumbling and grumbling in Corinth that well Paul wasn't the apostle that maybe Peter and others would be and apparently there was no one that stepped up and said well now then whether Paul accepts our support or would rather support himself or even take support from other churches. That's his right. That's his choice. But instead it seemed they wanted to make it more than that. Look at the next few verses starting in verse 4. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles as the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it just Barnabas and myself? And we have no right or choice in this matter. And once again, those are rhetorical questions and they demand that no answer. Paul says, are there grades of the apostles? The real, the chief apostles. And they can be fully supported by the church. And they can take away, take around their wife on their missionary tours. And nobody says a mumbling word. But some of us lesser fellows, we can't get away with that. Because we don't measure up to that standard. 
Paul says, is that what you're saying? And are you saying that just that way? Well, they would hear those questions and no, that would be the answer. Skip on down to verse 8. And there are a series of five questions all growing out of the quotation from Deuteronomy. You shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And Paul says, now then, am I telling you just what I think? Or am I going to tell you what the Lord has said? And so if the ox can reach down and pull up a mouthful as he's treading in the field or on the threshing floor, is not the worker able to take uh, the fruit of his own labor? And so Paul says, so if we've sown spiritual things to you, is it such a great thing, a big thing, if we take of your material things? If others exercise this right, are we not even more deserving because of our close, intimate, personal relationship with the brethren there? Then look at the next section, and that begins the last part of verse 12 and goes down through verse 15. And there are questions bookending this statement that we have not used this right. We have used none of these liberties and then in verse 18, I've not exercised my full rights in the Lord, but he says, don't you know that those who minister holy things eat of the things of the altar in the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar in every religious system, not just Judaism, in Corinth, they had temples and shrines galore with priesthoods. And Paul says, don't you know the workers in those temples, they eat of the offering that is brought. They support themselves from the financial gift that is brought. And no one says anything about that. That's the way God set up his priesthood under the old law. Now then, are you under the delusion that somehow, in some way, God's system has changed in such a radical way that this is no longer the case? You'll notice back earlier he talks about common sense observations in verse 7. What about the soldier? Does he go to war at his own expense? Or do we not equip him and furnish material? What about the farmer? Can he not pluck the grapes in his own vineyard? What about the one who tends a flock? Can he not drink of the milk and make cheese from his own flock? Under what system are these things not seen and followed through on? And your complaint about me because I can, but I don't. And I won't. You need to look at that through a fresh set of eyes and see that in an altogether different light. And so here's the flow of what Paul lays out. And there's so much more that I think we could surely go to in detail if we had the time. 
This pulpit's just like the one in Pike's Peak in that there's never enough time built into my time. But there's a great lectureship book that's been printed. I had the pleasure of browsing through it last night. And there are some other things that I touched on in my lesson, and I recommend that to you as you might see fit. Some of the things perhaps are more interest to me than they will be for you, but wanted to get as much material in there as I possibly could. But here in the time that we have remaining are a couple of points that I think that I really want to bear down on. And number one, Paul's series of questions as the chapter begins. Now then, if I were to ask you this morning, or perhaps you're studying with someone in 1 Corinthians, written by Paul, you say, who was he? Corinth, where was that? Someone that hasn't read through the material countless times, as you and I have. If we were to read these questions to them and ask them, what state of mind do you think? the author was in. What do you think would be their obvious reply? Can you sense hurt feelings behind these words? Maybe a bit of indignation. I don't know if I would say outrage. Disappointment? Certainly. And here Paul is saying of all the important matters that's causing friction in Corinth. And as he goes through somewhat of a topical approach, this problem, next, next, next. Why is this even open for discussion? And Paul registers, I think, the sense and the spirit of being wounded and hurt by this, coming from his brethren in Corinth. And I think we can say that, safely say that, because we back up just a few pages and a couple of chapters and go back to chapter 4, and there we find Paul's piercing, withering word. Addressing those in Corinth who were so hypercritical of everything he said and everything he did. And it didn't quite measure up to their impeccable standard. Paul says, oh, you're rich. You're full. You have reigned like kings without us. Well, I would to God that you did reign so that we also might reign with you. And then Paul talks about his work and the apostles' calling. And I think in a large part he's using the editorial we here. And he's really talking about himself and his labors, his struggles, his sacrifice. The Corinthians should have known that better than anyone else. And Paul says, well, you are honorable. We're dishonored. 
You're puffed up and full. We're empty and deflated. You are to be regarded as the right scholars that you are, wise in the wisdom and the ways of God, and I somewhat lag behind in that gift. And then Paul will say, now that I'm not writing this to shame you, but he was, and it should have. I'm not writing this so much to hurt you, but now that I want you to know this, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you don't have that many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel of all the people that should have known Paul best. And if he chooses not to travel accompanied by, with his family members on the church's expense, well, that's his choice. It's not right. It's not wrong. He can if he wants to, and he can decline to do that if he chooses to. Of all the people that Paul worked with, he should have received the most sympathetic hearing among his brethren in Corinth. But you know, sometimes when we talk about Corinth, the phrase that comes up again and again, well, that's the problem, church. You've heard that, haven't you? And the Apostle Paul had somewhat of a strained relationship with them. And he did. As he gets over into the second letter as we have it, they weren't happy with the way that he was taking up a collection for the needy. Not altogether sure it was going to get where it needed to go. Somewhat outraged that he went up to Macedonia and used strong-arm tactics on those poor, pitiful brethren up there. One complaint against another, another, and another that Paul addresses, and he's in the crosshairs of each and every one of them. Paul says, you need to know better. You need to do better. And I think we can see something of his hurt feelings in that regard. Here's a quote that I like. Before my time, but when I was just a little fellow, first starting to teach a class and do some reading and studying, came across a series of adult class workbooks by Brother E.H. Imes. For many years, he was a fixture in the Nashville, Tennessee area has a whole series of adult Bible class books, the Crusader themes, and he just brings out one great insight after another, I think. And I like this telling point that he makes about just the things that we're talking about this morning. Yes, Paul's feelings were hurt, but you know, 1 Corinthians 9 is not a pal. And it's not a scold. And it's not a get back. That's the way we are sometimes. And preachers are not immune to that. You can stand at the back door and shake the brethren out. 
I'm not doing that in this age of COVID. I hope someday we get back to that particular custom. And you know, theoretically, I suppose if we have a crowd of two or three hundred, maybe a hundred and fifty of them will come out and say, ah, I enjoyed that. I hadn't thought about it just that way before. And that's interesting. I wonder how it ties in with this or that or the other. And you know, you just sit there and beam and then someone comes out and says, I went a little long today, preacher, didn't you? And that one comment is what I take home and think about for the rest of the day. Sometimes we are oh so sensitive when someone is fussing on us or about us. Well, Paul's feelings are hurt and he's feeling that. No question about it. We can read that in his words, but as Brother Iam says, his reply is not unmasked logic. It's not just wrath let loose. It's not tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And he doesn't go into a personal scold. But he ties it all to this overall theme of, well, now then, let's talk about our rights, our choices. What Jesus allows to do, and maybe what is here and now is the best way to do it, or circumstances suggest it may not be the time to do that. Paul says, let's ground this on more important and solid principles rather than just hurt feelings. And I think as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we might come away with that greater sense of Paul and his approach to controversy, that if you preach and teach, if you do anything for the Lord sooner or later, that's a bill that comes due. But now then there's something else I think that we need to notice, and that's Paul's use of this particular phrasing. I can do what I choose not to, but I have the authority to do that because my Lord has commanded. And there you'll see that Paul had earlier quoted from Deuteronomy. Now it seems, to me at least, that Paul is alluding to the words of Jesus. And they're recorded in Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. And similarly in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 10. In other words, the Lord has commanded that the laborer is worthy of his hire. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17 and 18, Paul quotes that word for word. I think in 1 Corinthians 9, it's a looser paraphrase, an allusion to that rather than strictly a citation. But the more we think about that, the more that a, a bell ought to be sounding somewhere. Paul quoting... 
from a saying of Jesus. Well, he did that in Acts chapter 20. As he was meeting with the brethren of Ephesus in the little seaport town of Miletus, and he talks about how that it's more blessed to give and to receive. In your New Testament, I suspect those words are in red font, a saying of Jesus. Well, it's not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul is quoting Jesus from a source not available to us. Well, I think Paul does the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and here in 1 Corinthians 9. And if Luke, his co-worker, his traveling companion, his friend, if that's the source, well, you can just begin to see one domino talking, toppling the next. When did Paul write the Corinthians? Was the gospel of Luke already in existence? Everybody says Mark was written first. Well, one of the four had to come first. Suits me just fine if it was Mark or there's some other chronology. But here Paul is quoting, I think, from the words of Jesus, barely 20 years after our Lord went to the cross. Now then that's a view of the dating of the New Testament books that's not taught here, that is taught here in Bear Valley, not taught in seminaries and in places all across the land. I kind of believe that Luke wrote Luke and Paul wrote Corinthians. And here we find Paul citing his Lord as authority. Our Lord has said, and then, this discussion on his rights and privileges. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 6. And then two times in verse 12, Paul uses that word right. I have the power. I have the freedom of choice. And here we find that Paul just repeats this again and again and again and again and again in just a handful of verses. And the word that he uses is that word more often translated authority. That word's found 103 times in our New Testament. 53 times it's translated authority. You'll remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when the people were amazed because Jesus taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. Well, it's the same word that Paul is using here. I have the power. I have the choice. I have the freedom. I can do this. But you know, just because I can doesn't mean that I should. And back to the lesson that we had first last night, laying the framework for much of 1 Corinthians. There's the Lord's wisdom, and that's what we need to stand on and be united on. Now then, these other matters, you may want to do it your way. I'll shake my head. I may roll my eyes. I may say to myself, well, you're going to find out sooner or later that wasn't the best way. You ought to do it Grady's way. But I allow you, your choice, and you allow me, unless it's something that's altogether obligatory, thou shalt is altogether different from thou mayest. 
So there's something I think we need to keep in mind. And then with time coming to a close, here's the last thing that I want to touch on. To me, it is the beating heart of preaching and ministry and our motivation and our calling and our work as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're reading from the New American Standard, I think it says I'm under a compulsion. The NIV I am compelled. And here the Apostle Paul is saying in the New King James, necessity is laid upon me. Obligation is given to me. And woe is me if I don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ even when folks take offense or don't support me in the way I think they are. Brother Wayne mentioned that my dad was a gospel preacher. And I'll always treasure those times that I spent with him, even as a little shaver. And I can think back at times that I'd be there in the building, running around, playing. Every now and then, sneaking out into the auditorium and practice preaching. When I was a second, third, fourth grader, or whatever. And sometimes they would bring to my dad a litany of woes. Here's what I'm dealing with. Feel sorry with me. And my dad was fond of a paraphrased quote that he came up with, loosely based on a comment by Matthew Henry, one of his favorites, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But the way that my dad turned it around and worded it, I think, was even better. And his saying was, preaching is the highest calling and the sorriest trade. Now then, if you think about preaching and preachers' wives, let me talk to you too. And if you're looking at this all together as a career, And there's the salary. And a lot of us old timers, we can look back on those days. Age 70 is just right here in front of me. I look at my social security, how much Grady paid in, how much my brethren matched that. And for years and years and years and years, there was no matching of even social security. Health insurance... My wife, Darlene, and I are so grateful that we fell in with the Pikes Peak family. They treat us better than we deserve. It's not always that way. It's not everywhere among the Lord's people. Stock options. I joke with my brethren, I'm coming up, I can see retirement not that far off. I'm so going to enjoy that condo. That you've got for me over in Caesarea right off the golf course. And that's my church retirement home. Well, they laugh, but not ha, ha, ha. They kind of chuckle about that. If you're looking at preaching as a trade, as a career, 
It just doesn't measure up. You can take a BA degree from any school anywhere and get a higher paying job with more benefits. But that's not why we preach. And that's not why Paul preached. Paul says, I preach. And I will do nothing lest I hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. I preach and I want it to be a sense of fulfillment and reward. I've got an idea that Paul never lost sight of the hard fact that he persecuted the church of the living God. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, that I as a one who is born out of due season, and he talks about his persecution of the church. First Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Here was something that Paul never, ever really put behind him. Oh, he's not complaining about God's grace. He's not complaining about his full and free walk. But here's what I did. And I hurt so many. And you know, in giving my all and myself, I'm able to forego the support from my brethren. And that's what I do by choice, not by constraint. But Paul says, I will preach regardless. And this morning, I count it an honor and a privilege to be here among so many of my tribe. And may the Lord raise up more and more servants in the work of declaring his risen son and the salvation of our sinful world. Thank you.